Good morning. Hope you had a good week. Hope you had a a, a wonderful Thanksgiving. Uh, I will begin with U.S. President number three, Thomas Jefferson, part three. American Indian policies. Jefferson's experience with the American Indians began during his boyhood in Virginia and extended through his political career and into his retirement. He refuted the contemporary notion that Indians were inferior people and maintained that they were equal in body and mind to people of European descent. As governor of Virginia during the Revolutionary War, Jefferson recommended moving the Cherokee and Shawnee tribes who had allied with the British to west of the Mississippi River, but when he took office as president, he quickly took measures to avert another major conflict as American Indian societies were in collision and the British were inciting Indian tribes from Canada. In Georgia, he stipulated that the state would release its legal claims for lands to its west in exchange for military support in expelling the Cherokee from Georgia. This facilitated his policy <coughs> of western expansion to advance compactly as we multiply in keeping with his enlightened thinking. President Jefferson adopted an assimilation policy towards American Indians known as his Civilization Program which included securing peaceful U.S.-Indian treaty alliances and encouraging agriculture. Jefferson advocated that Indian tribes should make federal purchases by credit holding their lands as collateral for repayment. Various tribes accepted Jefferson's policies, including the Shawnees led by Black Hoof, the, the Creek, and Cherokees. However, some Shawnees broke off from Black Hoof, led by Tecumseh, and opposed Jefferson's assimilation policies. Historian Bernard Sheehan argues that Jefferson believed that assimilation was best for American Indians. Second best was the removal to the West. He felt that the worst outcome of the cultural and resources conflict between American citizens and American Indians would be their attacking the whites. Jefferson told Secretary of War General Henry Dearborn Indian Affairs were then under the War Department. If we are constrained to lift the hatchet against any tribe, we'll never lay it down until that tribe is exterminated or driven beyond the Mississippi. Miller agrees that Jefferson believed that Indians should assimilate to American customs and agriculture. Historians such as Peter S. Olnuff and Merrill D. Peterson argue that Jefferson's actual industry policies did little to promote assimilation or a re and were a pretext to seize lands. Re-election in 1804 and second term. Jefferson's second successful first term occasioned his renomination for president by the Republican Party, with George Clinton replacing Burr as his running mate. The Federalist Party ran Charles Coltsworth Pickney of South Carolina, John Adams vice presidential candidate in the 1800 election. The President Clinton, the Jefferson-Clinton ticket won overwhelmingly in the Electoral College by 162 to 14, promoting their achievement of a strong economy, lower taxes, and the Louisiana Purchase. In March 1806, a split developed in the Republican Party led by fellow Virginian and former Republican ally John Randall, who viciously accused President Jefferson on the floor of the House of moving too far in the Federalist direction. In so doing, Randall permanently set himself apart politically from Jefferson. Jefferson and Madison had backed resolutions to limit or ban British imports in retaliation for British actions against American shipping. Also in 1808, Jefferson was the first president to propose a ban, a broad federal ban to build roads and canals across several states, asking for a $20 million further alarming Randolph and beliefs of limited government. Jefferson's popularity further suffered in his, in his second term due to his response to wars in Europe. Positive relations with Great Britain had diminished due 
partly to the antipathy between Jefferson and British diplomat Anthony Mary after Napoleon's decisive victory at the Battle of Austerlitz in 1805, Napoleon became more aggressive in negotiations over trading watch, which American efforts failed to counter. Jefferson then led the enactment of the Embargo Act of 1807, led, directed at both France and Great Britain. This triggered economic chaos in the U.S. and was strongly criticized at the time, resulting in Jefferson having to abandon the policy a year later. During the Revolutionary Era, the states abolished the international slave trade, but South Carolina reopened it. In his annual message of December 1806, Jefferson denounced the violations of human rights attending the international slave trade, calling on the newly elected Congress to criminalize it immediately. In 1807, Congress passed an act, the act prohibiting importation of slaves, which Jefferson signed. The act established severe punishment against the international slave trade, although it did not address the issue domestically. In the wake of the Louisiana Purchase, Jefferson sought to annex Florida from Spain as brokered by Napoleon. Congress agreed to the President's request to seek the appropriate purchase money in the $2 million bill. The congressional funding drew criticism from Randolph, who believed that the money would wind up in the coffers of Napoleon. The bill was signed into law. However, negotiations for the project failed. Jefferson lost clout among fellow Republicans and his use of unofficial congressional channels was sharply criticized. In Haiti, Jefferson's neutrality had all had allowed arms to enable the slave independence movement during its revolution and blocked attempts to assist Napoleon, who was defeated there in 1803. But he refused official recognition of the country during his second term and deference to Southern complaints about racial violence against slaveholders. It was eventually extended to Haiti in 1862 domestically, Jefferson's grandson, James Madison Randolph, became the first child born in the White House in 1806. Burr Conspiracy and Trial Following the 1801 electoral deadlock, Jefferson's relationship with his vice president, former New York Senator Aaron Burr, rapidly eroded. Jefferson suspected Burr of seeking the presidency for himself, while Burr was angered by Jefferson's refusal to appoint some of his supporters to federal office. Burr was dropped from the Republican ticket in 1804. The same year, Burr was soundly defeated in his bid to be re-elected New York governor. During the campaign, Alexander Hamilton publicly made callous remarks regarding Burr's moral character. Subsequently, Burr challenged Hamilton to a duel, mortally wounding him on July 11, 1804. Burr was indicted for Hamilton's murder in New York and New Jersey, causing him to flee to Georgia, although he remained president of the Senate during Supreme Court Justice Samuel Chase's impeachment trial. Both indictments quietly died, and Burr was not prosecuted. Also during the election, certain New England subjects approached Burr desiring a New England confederation and intimidating and intimating that he would be their leader. However, nothing came of the plot since Burr had lost the election and his reputation was ruined after killing Hamilton. In August 1804, Burr conducted British Minister Anthony Mary offering to capture U.S. Western Territory in return for money and British ships. After leaving office in 1805, Burr traveled west and conspired with Louisiana Territory Governor James Wilkinson, beginning a large-scale recruitment for a military expedition. Other plotters included Ohio Senator John Smith and an Irishman named Harmon Blenner Hassett. Burr discussed a number of plots, seizing control of Mexico or Spanish Florida, 
or forming a secessionist state in New Orleans or the western U.S. Historians remain unclear as to its true goal. In the fall of 1806, Burr launched a military flotilla carrying about 60 men down the Ohio River. Wilkerson renounced the plot, apparently from self-interested motives. He reported Burr's expedition to Jefferson, who immediately ordered Burr's arrest. <coughs> On February 13, 1807, Burr was captured in Louisiana's Bayou Pierre Wilderness and sent to Virginia to be tried for treason. Burr's 1807 conspiracy trial became a national issue. Jefferson attempted to preemptively influence the verdict by telling Congress that Burr's guilt was beyond question, but the case came before his longtime political foe, John Marshall, who dismissed the treason charge. Burr's legal team at one stage subpoenaed Jefferson, but Jefferson refused to test them, making the first argument for executive privilege. <clears throat> Instead, Jefferson provided rele relevant legal documents after a three-month trial the jury found Burr not guilty while Jefferson denounced his acquittal. Jefferson subsequently removed Wilkerson as territorial governor but retained him in the U.S. military. Historian James N. Banner criticized Jefferson for continuing to trust Wilkerson, a faithless plotter. General Wilkerson, misconduct commanding General James Wilkerson was, hold, was a holdover of the Washington and Anderson administrations. Wilkerson was rumored to be a skillful and unscrupulous plotter. In 1804, Wilkerson received 12,000 pesos from the Spanish for information on American boundary plans. Wilkerson also received advances on his salary and payments on claims submitted to Secretary of War Henry Dearborn. This damaging information apparently was unknown to Jefferson. In 1805, Jefferson trusted Wilkerson and appointed him Louisiana Territory Governor, admired Wilkerson's worth as work ethic. In January 1806, Jefferson received information from Kentucky U.S. Attorney Gen Joseph Davies that Wilkerson was on the Spanish payroll. Jefferson took no action against Wilkerson, there being at the time lack of evidence against Wilkerson. An, an investigation by the House in December 1807 exonerated Wilkerson. In 1808, a military court looked into Wilkerson but lacked evidence to charge Wilkerson. Jefferson retained Wilkerson in the Army as he was passed on by Jefferson to Jefferson's successor, James Madison. 20th century evidence revealed in Spanish archives proved Wilkerson was on the Spanish payroll. Chesapeake Leopard Affair and Embargo Act. The British conducted raids on American shipping and kidnapped seamen in 1806-1807. Thousands of Americans were thus impressed into the British Naval Service. In 1806, Jefferson issued a call for boycott of British goods. On April 18th, Congress passed the Non-Importation Act, but they were never enforced. Later that year, Jefferson asked James Monroe and William Pinckney to negotiate with Great Britain to end the harassment of American shipping, though Britain showed no signs of approving relations. The Monroe-Pinckney Treaty was finalized but lacked any provisions to end impressment, and Jefferson refused to submit it to the Senate for ratification. The British ship HMS Leopard fired upon the USS Chesapeake off the Virginia coast in June 1807 and just prepared for war. He issued a proclamation banning armed British ships from U.S. waters. He presumed unilateral authority to call on states to prepare 100,000 militia in order to purchase of arms, ammunition, and supplies, writing the laws of necessity of self-privatization, of saving our country were in danger, in danger or of higher obligation than strict observance of written laws. The USS Revenge was dispatched to demand 
An explanation from British from the British government. It was also fired upon. Jefferson called for a special secession of Congress in October to enact an embargo or alter the need to consider war. In December, news arrived that Napoleon had, or, had extended the Berlin Decree, globally banning British imports. In Britain, King George III ordered redoubling efforts at impressment, including American sailors, but the war fever of the summer faded. Congress had no appetite to prepare the U.S. for war. Jefferson asked for and received the Embargo Act, an alternative that allowed the U.S. more time to build up defensive works, militias, and naval forces. Later, historians have seen irony in Jefferson's assertion of such federal power. Meacham claims that the Embargo Act was a projection of power which surpassed the Alien Sedition Act, and R.B. Bernstein writes that Jefferson was pursuing policies resembling those he had cited in 1776 as grounds for independence and revolution. Secretary of State James Madison supported the embargo with the equal vigor to Jefferson, while Treasury Secretary Gallatin opposed it due to its indefinite time frame and the risks that opposed to the policy of American neutrality. The U.S. economy suffered, criticism grew, and opponents began evading the embargo. Instead of retreating, Jefferson sent federal agents to secretly track down smugglers and violators. Three acts were passed in Congress during 1807 and 1808, called the Supplementary, the Additional, and Enforcement Acts. The government could not prevent American vessels from trading with the European belligerents once they had left American ports, although the embargo triggered a devastating decline in exports. Most historians consider Jefferson's embargo to have been ineffective and harmful to American interests. Appleby describes the strategy as Jefferson's least effective policy, and Joseph Ellis calls it an unadulterated calamity. Others, however, portray it as an innovative, nonviolent measure which aided France in its war with Britain of preserving American neutrality. Jefferson believed that the failure of the embargo was due to selfish traitors and merchants showing a lack of Republican virtue. He maintained that had the embargo been widely observed, it would have avoided war in 1812. In December 1807, <coughs> in December 1807, Jefferson announced his intention not to seek a third term. He returned his attention increasingly to Monticello during the last year of his presidency, giving Madison Gallatin almost total control of affairs shortly before leaving office in March 1809. Jefferson signed the repeal of the embargo in its place. The Non-Intercourse Act was passed, but proved, but it proved no more effective. The day before Madison was inaugurated as a successor, Jefferson said that he felt like a prisoner released from his chains. Post-presidency, 1809-1826. Following his retirement from the presidency, Jefferson continued his pursuit of educational interests. He sold his vast collection of books to the Library of Congress, and founded and built the University of Virginia. Jefferson extended to correspond with many of the country's leaders, and the Monroe Doctrine bears a strong resemblance to solicit advice that Jefferson gave to <coughs> Jefferson gave to Monroe in 1803-1823. As, as he settled into private life in Monticello, Jefferson developed a daily routine of rising early, he would spend several hours writing letters which, with which he uh, was often deluged. In the midday, 
In the midday, he would often inspect the plantation on horseback. In the evening, the family enjoyed leisure time in the gardens. Late at night, Justin would retire to bed with a book. However, his routine was, his routine was often interrupted by uninvited visitors and tourists eager to see the icon in his final days during Monticello, turning Monticello into a virtual hotel. University of Virginia. Jefferson envisioned a university free of church influences where students could specialize in many new areas not offered at other colleges. He believed that education engendered a stable society which should provide publicly funded schools accessible to students from all social strata based solely on ability. He initially proposed his university to a letter, in a letter to Joseph Priestley in 1800 and in 1819, the 76-year-old Joseph founded the University of Virginia. He organized a state legislative campaign for its charter and, with the assistance of Edmund Bacon, purchased the location. He was the principal designer of the buildings, planned the university's curriculum, and served as the first rector upon its opening in 1825. Jefferson was a strong disciple of Greek and Roman architectural styles, which he believed to be the most representative of American democracy. Each academic unit called the pavilion was designed with the two-story temple front, while the library rotunda was modeled on the Roman Pantheon. Jefferson referred to the university's grounds as the academical village, and he reflected his educational ideas in his layout. The ten pavilions included classrooms and, and faculty residences. They formed a quadrangle and were connected by colonnades behind which stood the students' rows of rooms. Gardens and vegetable plots were placed behind the pavilions and were surrounded by serpentine walls affirming the importance of the agrarian style. The university had a library rather than a church at its center, emphasizing its secular nature, a controversial aspect at the time. When Jefferson died in 18, 1826, James Madison replaced him as rector. Jefferson bequeathed most of his library to the university. Reconciliation with Adams. In 1804, Abigail Adams attempted to reconcile Jefferson and Adams. Jefferson and John Adams had been good friends in the first decades of their political careers, serving together in the Continental Congress in the 1770s and in Europe in the 1780s. The Federalist Republicans had kind of split in the 1790s and divided them. However, and Adams felt betrayed by Jefferson's sponsorship of partisan attacks, such as those of James Callender. Jefferson, on the other hand, was angered at Adams for his appointment of midnight judges. The two men did not communicate directly for more than a decade. After Jefferson succeeded Adams as president, a brief correspondence took place between Abigail Adams and Jefferson after Jefferson's daughter Polly died in 1804 in an attempt at reconciliation undone to Adams. However, an exchange of letters resumed open hostility between Adams and Jefferson. As early as 1809, Benjamin Rush, signer of the Declaration of Independence, decided that Jefferson and Adams began to prod the two through correspondence to re-establish contact. In 1812, Adams wrote a short New Year's greeting to Jefferson, prompted early by Rush, to which Jefferson warmly responded. Thus began what historian David McCullough calls one of the most extraordinary correspondence in American history. Over the next 14 years, the former president exchanged 158 letters discussing their political differences, justifying their respective roles and events, and debating the revolution's import to the world. 
When Adams died, his last words long included an acknowledgement of his longtime friend and rival. Thomas Jefferson survives, unaware that several hours unaware that Jefferson had died several hours before. Autobiography. In 1821, at the age of 77, Jefferson began writing his autobiography <coughs> in order to state some recollections of dates and facts concerning myself. He focused on the struggles and achievements he experienced until July 29, 1790, where the narrative stopped short. He excluded his youth, emphasized the revolutionary era. He related that his ancestors came from Wales to America in the early 17th century and settled in the western frontier of the Virginia colony, which influenced his zeal for individual and state rights. Jefferson described his father as uneducated but with a strong mind and sound judgment. His enrollment in the College of William & Mary and the election to the Continental Congress of Philadelphia in 1775 were included. He, was, he also expressed opposition to the idea of a privileged aristocracy made up of large land-owning families partial to the king and instead promoted the aristocracy of virtue and talent which nature had has wisely provided for the direction of the interests of society and scattered with equal hand through all its conditions was deemed essential to a well-ordered public republic. Jefferson gave his insight about people, politics, and events the work is primarily concerned with the declaration and reforming the government of Virginia. He used notes, letters, and documents to tell many of the stories within the autobiography. He suggested that this, this history was so rich that his personal affairs were better overlooked, That he, but he incorporated self-analysis using the declaration and other patriotism. Lafayette's visit. In the summer of 1824, the Lafayette accepted an invitation for President James Monroe to visit the country. Jefferson and Lafayette had not seen each other since 1789. After visits to New York, New England, and Washington, Lafayette arrived at Monticello on November 4th. Jefferson's grandson Randolph was president and recorded the reunion. As they approached each other, their uncertain gait quickened itself into a shuffling run and exclaimed, Ah, Jefferson! Ah, Lafayette! They burst into tears as they fell into each other's arms. Jefferson and Lafayette then retired to the house to reminisce. The next month, Jefferson, Lafayette, and James Madison ended a tour and banquet at the University of Virginia. Jefferson had some, someone else read a speech he had prepared for Lafayette as his voice was weak and could not carry. This was his last public presentation after an 11-day visit. Lafayette bid Jefferson goodbye and departed Monticello. Final days, death, and burial. Jefferson's approximately $100,000 of debt weighed heavily on his mind in his final months as it became increasingly clear that he would have little to leave to his heirs. In February 1826, his successor applied to the General Assembly to hold a public lottery as a fundraiser. His health began to deteriorate in July 1825 due to a combination of rheumatism from arm and wrist injuries as well as intestinal and urinary disorders. And by June 1826, he was confined to bed. On July 3rd, Jefferson was overcome by fever and declined an invitation, invitation to Washington to attend the celebration, anniversary celebration of the Declaration. During the last hour of his life, he was accompanied by family members and friends. Jefferson died on July 4th at 12.50 p.m. at age 83, the same day as the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. His last recorded words were, No doctor, nothing more. Refusing laudanum from his physician, but his final significant words are often cited as, is it the fourth, or it, this is the fourth, when John Adams died, his last words included an acknowledgement of his longtime friend and rival, 
Jones, Thomas Jefferson survives, though Adams was unaware that Jefferson had died several hours before. The sitting president was Adams' son, John Quincy Adams, and he called the coincidence of their deaths on the nation's anniversary visible and palpable remarks of divine favor. Shortly after Jefferson had died, attendants found a gold locket on a chain around his neck where it had rested for more than 40 years, containing a small faded blue ribbon who died tied a lock of his wife Martha's brown hair. Jefferson's remains were buried at Monticello under an epitaph that he wrote. Here was buried Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of American Independence, of the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom, and father of the University of Virginia. In his advanced years, Jefferson became increasingly concerned that people understand the principles and, and the people responsible for writing the Declaration of Independence and continually defended himself as its author. He considered the document one of his greatest life's achievements, in addition to his authoring the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom and his founding of the University of Virginia. Plainly absent from his epitaph were his political roles, including President of the United States. Jefferson died deeply in debt, and able to pass on his estate flee to his heirs. He gave instructions in his will for disposal of his assets, including the freeing of Sally Hammond's children, but his estate, possessions, and slaves were sold at public auction starting in 1827. In 1831, Monticello was sold by Martha, Jefferson Randall, and two other heirs. Political, social, and religious views. Jefferson subscribed to the political ideals surrounded by John Locke, Francis Bacon, and Isaac Newton, whom exerted the three greatest men who ever lived. He was also influenced by the writers of Gibbon, Hume, Robinson, Bolingbroke, Montesquieu, and Voltaire. Jefferson thought that the independent yeoman and agrarian life were ideals of Republican virtues. He distrusted cities and financiers, favored decentralized government power, and believed that the tyranny that had plagued the common man in Europe was due to corrupt political establishment and monarchies. He supported efforts to disestablish the Church of England, wrote the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom, and he pressed for a wall of separation between church and state. The Republicans under Jefferson were strongly influenced by the 18th century British Whig Party, which believed in limited government. His Democratic Republican Party became dominant in early American politics, and his views became known as Jefferson, Jeffersonian Democracy. Uh, part 4 to begin to be continued next. Hope you're enjoying this segment on Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the U.S. Thank you for listening.